Have a seat, everyone. Thanks, Katrina and everybody. Hey, um, I'm running through a quick three-week series on foundations, and so we did uh, Does God Exist last week, and today we're doing the Bible, and then next week we're going to be talking about prayer and the Psalms. So let's dig into this then this morning. Um, I'm going to kind of position the Bible with a couple of extremes um, that we fall into, and then kind of break it down and then tell you what I kind of think. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you what I think about how we should be reading Scripture, like what's a, a way to be reading Scripture these days. So um, we begin then with two classic doctrinal foundational scriptures about Scripture, okay? And one's out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, and the other's out of Hebrews chapter 4. And um, listen to these. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Indeed, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. So two classic passages positioning Scripture saying this is what it is. It divides, it splits, it sees deeper than you would ever know. And it's also very useful. It tells you how to live. And so this is the way we think about Scripture. This is Scripture actually witnessing to itself. The Bible, you know, perhaps no other book or written record has shaped our Western world more than the Bible. It is the, the, the text for Western culture for a long, long time. I mean, if you're in the Far East, you have Confucius. And if you're in the Middle East, you have, at least for the last thousand years, you have the Koran, uh, if you're Muslim and so forth. But for 3,000 years old, the Bible has been around. It was written over a whole millennium. And it's really just about one people, the Jewish people, the Hebrews. It's about one people and their relationship with God. And the Bible then reveals that one God. And reformer John Calvin said 500 years ago, he said, hey, you know, nature is, is um, perhaps the first revelation of God, but the Bible is the best revelation of God. And I would agree with that. Nature is a great first dose of understanding things beyond us like God, but the scriptures actually are the most clear and the best revelation to God because it's the story of those one people, the Hebrews, and how they've interacted with God. That is really, really good. So then I have to ask the question, so why is there so much confusion around the Bible? Why do people have different opinions about how it ought to be read? Well, I contend that something has gone drastically wrong in our approach to reading the Bible, something so wrong that it has led to emotionally unhealthy Christians. It has messed up Christians because they're reading the scripture from, from the wrong starting point, which is what I want to go after today. And it leads then to unhealthy churches, uh, weird doctrines, and all sorts of things that trickle down out of this thing. So there, there seems to be two extremes to reading the Bible. And the first one is really what scholars would call a liberal reading. And I know, um, I know, you know, in our politically divisive 
culture these days, liberal is kind of loaded, right? It's what they'd call an opaque term because it's thick and it stops right there. But if you can kind of go back to just broaden it out to meaning liberal without the political overtones to it, okay? And so the, the liberal reading then um, is really a materialist reading, just to give you another 10-cent word. So it's a material world, uh, Madonna, and, and, it, and actually Madonna's material girl song is not too far from the technical meaning of the word materialist. So, um, I mean, Madonna meant it, you know, about bangles and diamonds and stuff like that and just all I want your money. Uh, cool. But um, it, what it means in this, in our context, especially about scripture, is it just means what's right here. What is material you can grab. Nothing spiritual, nothing ethereal, no heaven, no miracles, nothing like that. Just what can you put in your hands, right? That's a materialism, okay? Duh. We kind of all get this sort of word, and we kind of know what it means. So there's this liberal reading of the Bible. There is no parting of the Red Sea, according to the liberal understanding of Scripture, reading of Scripture. There is no virgin conception of Jesus by Mary. There is no water turned into wine at the wedding in Cana in the gospel. Um, there is no resurrection. There is no second coming of Jesus. There is nothing transcendent. There is nothing spiritual. Okay? It is just a materialist reading. And it would say then, look, we live in a scientific world. And science and technology have replaced faith and miracle. We no longer think in terms of an enchanted world or a faith world or a miraculous world or what we might call a supernatural world. So we end up with a non-miraculous parting of the Red Sea, for instance. And so you'll find people writing books, like a classic book is The Fingerprint of God, uh, where a scientist tries to explain away the miracles of God. And the parting of the Red Sea is a, a classic one. It says, look, there is a phenomenon that happens uh, up there around the Sinai uh, Peninsula where the Red Sea is actually very shallow, it's marshy, it's kind of swampy, and every now and then this phenomenon comes in where it's a super dry, hot wind blows in there, and it will literally blow the water off the swamp, off the marshes, and it becomes dry enough where you can really walk through it. Like, oh, well, that explains it. And then, of course, the old joke comes back in, like, yeah, and so then Pharaoh and his army, including the chariots and horses and everything, drowned in six inches of water. Okay, so, you know, like, so it kind of broke down, in other words. Um, so that would be a materialist or a literal, liberal reading of the scripture. There's no supernatural in the natural world. God cannot enter into time, space, history as we would all understand it. So therefore, then the Bible gets this boiled down to this sort of thing you would have in some college English class. It's a literary work. It's a history book. Uh, you mine it to find out some things about, say, Assyrian culture or something like that. You know, it just becomes useful as a tool for anthropology and sociology and so forth. There's nothing living. There's nothing active. There's nothing like Timothy saying that it's sh sharp or the soul piercing about it. There's nothing dividing. There's nothing like that, you know. I mean, unless you really kind of want to sort of stretch it around as a science book. This reading of the Bible has been active really about since the time of the birth of America. So well over 200 years. It comes along right in there with rationalism, the age of enlightenment. You know what I mean. This kind where everybody began to really get all excited about science and th thinking. Everything moved up to the head. Um, but really in the last um, 25 years, this liberal materialist 
extreme of reading scripture, or really even in our worldview, has really begun to kind of fall apart with post-modernity. So post-modernism begins to say like, you know, you can read science all you want, but all it means is there's another question. And what's objective truth? There's nothing really objective. You know, there's no, as we all understand from the news media these days, like there's nothing objective about anything. Everything's got spin. And that's postmodern. You know what I mean? Everybody's got an opinion. Everyone's got a point of view. And no one's really getting the pure, unadulterated truth of anything. Right? So if you think that and you kind of nod in with that, you're like, well, that just means you're postmodern. You're a part of the modern culture. And this old sort of materialist viewpoint is beginning to kind of fall apart. Interesting where we'll be heading in the future. So the other view then, the other pole, is then a literalist view of reading Scripture. So I'll put it down here. A literalist view And we find the, the literalist view is, works a lot within conservative Christianity, particularly now it's kind of what's been labeled as evangelical or evangelicalism or at least even maybe fundamentalism even uh, so. So this is the conservative view for Christians in America, and it's the literalist view of the Bible. And uh, I've talked to many Christians over 40 years of ministry who have told me, well, I just read the Bible literally. I don't interpret the scripture. I just read the Bible uh, without any, any interpretation whatsoever, to which I have to say that is poppycock. Everyone interprets. It is impossible not to interpret anything we read, whether it be a news magazine or your textbook in school or the Bible. I mean, so think about it. Here's the way this breaks down. Okay? So... Let's just say, let's pick a miracle out of the scripture. Let's go to uh, the wedding at Cana and Jesus turns water into wine, okay? You have the original event. So here we go. We've got ourselves a wine glass. This is going to represent the turning water into wine. And this is the original event. It happened in time space, okay? There was a wedding and this is a miracle in the Bible, right? And so then you have the observer of the event, okay? You have the observer. So somebody sees it. I'm giving you, I think, Squidward eyes. And they look at it, and um, they see the event. So here's the first interpretation. You know, dude. Why do we have to watch Tariq Hill drop a pass three times on slow motion instant replay? So we can all disagree, and that's called fun. You know, and, and then, you, you know, the next day you read Tariq, and like he says, I don't know, someone's in my eyes. Like, oh, okay, well, that's not true, Tariq. You don't even know what you're talking about, man. I saw you. You tripped. So, you know, like what? So we can't even agree, and we all see the same exact thing. So you have this first thing going on, the second step after the original event, where it's always interpreted, okay? So then that observer then writes down what they saw, okay? They're going to write it down. They're going to write it down, and I'm going to put it in a, I, I hope, like a, a scroll. You know what I mean? 
that's not really working, but whatever. So they write it down here on a scroll, like on a papyrus or whatever is the New Testament, and uh, it gets written down. So then they used language to process what they saw. Third interpretation, right? Not to mention the fact that it was written in uh, perhaps um, the, the Koine Greek, you know, if you're Luke or whatever, perhaps even in Hebrew. And now that's getting translated. So let's leave that off to the side because it even adds another dimension thing. Then guess what happens? You and I, <laughs> then we come in here and once again, okay, I'm going to go with SpongeBob's eyes this time. Um, you, you come in here and then you read what they wrote. Or I'm just going to call this the reader, the modern reader, right? We read, we read what they wrote, right? So there, now you're on to your fourth step away from the original event. And then that reader then pictures in their mind what the observer saw. So now they're kind of over here. They're like thinking and they're thinking and they're thinking. They're going like, hmm, they got a little furrowed brow going on. I don't know, what the heck? So, you know, and they're thinking about the whole thing, right? And then they draw a conclusion. Like if I say blue, I'm thinking of a 66 Ford Bronco. You're thinking of a 67 Buick. Most of you are like, I don't think either. I was thinking of the Royals. I was thinking of the sky. Like, who knows? Right? So that's kind of the process. And this, by the way, applies to everything. And by the way, this is part of the uh, inner workings. It's actually a really technical thing uh, when you get around to post-modernity. So postmodern is saying this is what's actually going on. And it does get to some sort of a idea of truth, but truth then becomes very, very sort of open. So you'll find this very, uh, 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 you'll find a very honest assessment of this process is, Thing And you find this is really interesting that the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke, really sees this sort of thing going on. And he starts off his very Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1, and he recognizes that this sort of thing is happening. And so here's what he says. Luke says, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us. So keep in mind, Luke is not one of the disciples. He says, hand it on to us. He's kind of using a royal we as well as the whole church. And he's saying like, I, this is what was handed down to us. I wasn't at the wedding of Canaan. Okay? This was handed down to me, he says, by, to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I too decided after investigating everything carefully, Dr. Luke says, from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. By the way, Theophilus, sometimes scholars say like is a made-up name that was a device used when writing letters. And if you break it down, you can see two words in there, Theo, Philosus, you know, and uh, God, thinker, you know what I mean? So here's somebody who's thinking about God a lot. So if you're a God thinker or like a smart God person, you're reading this. Okay. So that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. And then he goes on, starts off. In the days of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. And off to the races we go with the gospel of Luke. So see, Luke understands that he is interpreting 
what other people saw. He's way over here listening to their stories. Far from the original event. Now, if you were super like literalist and all uptight, you'd be like, well, that's an abomination. Because this is, Luke's totally inspired by the thing. Like, dude, Luke is telling you exactly what he's doing right here. You know? And uh, so, indeed, he wants to be as accurate as possible. Why? Why does Luke want to be accurate? Well, because he's telling the whole story of Jesus as it is. He's trying to get everything in there. It's miraculous, of, of course. You know, there's supernatural things going on. And there's also the things where they're walking down the road and they're spending the night here and all the kind of mundane things are in there. And he's trying to get it all in there and tell a story. It doesn't tell you everything, you know. We don't know everything about Jesus' life. It's a select story. It's being threaded to tell a story, right? Uh, the other thing Luke has going on is even though he wasn't an eyewitness, he has to deal with people that were. So he better get it right because they're going to say, Luke, you're wrong. That's not what happened. So he has to tell it as accurately as he can because he's amongst a cloud of witnesses, if you want to put it that way. All right? Still, he tells his own interpretation of the events. It is his interpretation. It goes into Scripture. It's approved by the church of saying, like, not just later on, like at the Council of Nicaea. It's approved by those that first read it, like, yeah, Luke's is right. That's a good one. You know, there are other stories of Jesus that the early church said, like, that bogus. That's, that ain't happened. Where'd you get that stuff? But Luke's was cool, and so was, so was John's, which is really kind of out there. And, of course, Matthew and Mark. They're all in there. So Luke tells his own. And you and I are not open to changing the text around and just making up whatever we want about Jesus. So um, back in that kind of, we're going to say those old-fashioned modernist people, you know, those liberal materialists, right? Those not postmodern people because we're so cool because we're postmodern. Anyway, those people like back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, the, I got them on my bookshelf. There were books out there by like Ben Meyer, uh, Jesus, a marginal Jew, right? And Jesus kind of ends up being this sort of like nobody, kind of went around saying, hey, there's no miracles or anything like that. And he's just sort of like not a really good Jew. And really, frankly, he kind of ends up looking like sort of a frumpy Friday night college professor at a cocktail party with the leather patches on his <laughs> tweed jacket. And you're like, who would, that guy didn't change the world. He's just sort of a lame-o dude, you know. And then you get the same kind of thing out of uh, John Dominic Crossan in Jesus the Mediterranean Peasant. And once again, there's no miracles, and Jesus ends up sounding like this sort of frumpy college professor. And you're like, as one scholar said over 100 years ago, he says, all these modern New Testament scholars all look down the well of history about Jesus' life, and they just see their own face reflecting back up at him. <clears throat> like, so we all interpret Jesus in our own face. And, um, and then just to kind of get out there, you guys remember, are any of you old enough to remember Martin Scorsese, the director? And he did this crazy story about Jesus that he really ripped off from the even crazier Bishop Spong. And Bishop Spong came up with a story that Scorsese put into a film where Jesus uh, goes off and marries the former prostitute, Mary Magdalene, and they run off to Egypt together and have a family. And there's no death on the cross and there's no resurrection. He's saying, like, oh, that really, that's the way it really happened. Like, what are you talking about? 
I mean, when Luke wrote his gospel, nobody said like, oh man, they're like down in Egypt living it up. And you're like, Scorsese, you're just trying to sell movie tickets, you silly nut. You know, you just want to make a buck off this thing by freaking everybody out. And the more Christians kind of flip out about it, the more publicity gets totally for free. Um, So the literalist has this uh, philosophical error then, okay? And this error is the near cousin to the liberal error. So the literalist and the liberal are kind of really two sides of the coin, if you want to think about it that way. They want the Bible to be a modern science book. They want it to be a science book. Obviously, the liberal materialists just reduce it down to that. But these guys think it's like a magical, you know, uh, cookbook. That you just read it, there's no interpretation, and you just get whatever, you, whatever it says. Like you can actually do that sort of thing. So liberal, literalists have just about as big a problem as the liberals do, because they want it all just to be this sort of scientific sort of thing. Like they're the pure reader. And that's the problem with the literalists is thinking that they aren't going through this process at all. Like they think they were sitting in the room where it happened. And that's not happening. I ran into this quote um, from a former president years ago, Dallas Theological Seminary president, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who uh, speaking for many evangelicals at the popular level. And he said this, quoting, the very fact that I did not study a prescribed course in theology, I'm going to read this with a little bit of sarcasm, the very fact that I didn't study a prescribed course in theology, in other words, he didn't get any training, made it possible for me to approach the subject of the Bible, that is, with an unprejudiced mind and to be concerned only with what the Bible actually teaches. Lou, get a clue. You did not just crawl out from underneath your rock and interpret the Bible purely, objectively, with no opinion. First clue is you read it in English, not in the original Greek. You got that? And by the way, this Bible I have right here that they told me to get in seminary's 1983 version first came out as the authorized version in 1611 as the King James Version. And because we don't speak these and thous anymore, it had to get updated. Lou. So Chaffer's convinced that his mind is pure. And he believes he is this blank slate, this tabla rasa of interpretation And, like, he is the very first reader of the Bible to absolutely ever get it objectively. Never mind that, you know, he's reading the whole thing in multiple translations, even within English. So, how do we read the Bible, then, in a healthy way? What's a proper way to read the Bible? And I'm just going to give you one real good, solid place, because I am the pure, unadulterated (laughs) interpreter of the Bible. So, no. Um, So... Here's how we read it in a proper way. You would read the Bible the same way you would read a love letter. You would read the Bible the same way you would read a love letter. Rather than a science book and rather than a newspaper. uh, I remember an old guy up at uh, Colonial Presbyterian, uh, Brother Al. And he said all he ever did was call this God's love letter. That's the way he talked about it all the time. God's love letter. One of the nicest guys I ever knew. And love letters, you guys, are about relational belonging, aren't they? They're about relationship and they're about belonging. 
How do we read love letters? Well, you read them over and over and over because it's a love letter. It doesn't matter how short it is. You're going to read it over and over and over. You're going to memorize it. Dads, if you sat down this afternoon and you sat down and you wrote a letter to your little girl, right? You would pour out your heart to her. You'd tell her your dreams for her. You'd tell her who to marry and who to stay away from. That's Proverbs, by the way. And you would tell her everything you wanted to. You would tell her the stories that when she was too little to know about the stories of your family tree and weird Uncle Harold. And that's why they all turned out like that over there. And that's part of the Bible story, too, about how weird things are. And you would tell, uh, you would write about eternity and that you will never stop thinking about her. And she's a miracle. And, um, but mostly, you would want her to know that she belongs to you. She is your little girl. And you'd tell her that she's a gift from God and she belongs to God and she's the best thing that ever happened. Wouldn't you? Exactly what's going on in this book, isn't it? Weird Uncle Harold and everybody else. It's Got all the trashy stuff in here, and a guy named David who took a day off from being a mighty warrior, and what ends up happening to him, Bathsheba? You know what I mean? You read it like a love letter. The worst thing you can ever do is just read the Bible for information. It ruins it. You can't read it like a history book or a newspaper. I mean, no dad writes his daughter a love letter by simply copying the birth certificate and saying, there. It's not that way. Both the literalist and the liberal are resisting, really, soul transformation. That's really what it comes down to. Because, you guys, it just comes back to the same old thing. Week in and week out, we all want to be in control. And what better way to be in control than to say, I know exactly what it says, and up here, I know exactly what it doesn't say. And the fact is, we are not in control. And the Bible sits around and tells us story after story of people who thought they were in control, but they really weren't. And that's the lesson to be learned, and that's why we read it over and over and over. We read it as a love letter, we memorize it, we cherish it, we linger over the phrases, we throw out the phrases to our friends and so forth, and we ponder, we ponder why that would have been written and puzzle ourselves, or like, why would they write Ecclesiastes and that sort of thing? And that's why the Bible's got to be kept close and read differently than any other book, and why we, we have to let it master us and become the script for our life, because it's already the life that we're going to live anyway. Personally, these days, I read the scriptures more spiritually than about anything. I have over 50 years of reading the Bible. I used to read it very literalist. I used to read it thinking I was the objective reader. I read it for information. I read it as a weapon, you know, to have arguments back in my early days, and I could do all that. And then over time, I just have gotten so used to it being much more of a spiritual love letter type thing. 50 years of reading the Bible. I've memorized parts of it since I was eight years old doing Bible drills. Anybody here ever do a Bible drill? Any Baptist, former Baptist, 
Bible drills, man. Who can find that verse fastest, right? So, and without cheating with your thumb, because there's the Psalms right there. Man, we were good at that, too. And then um, 30 years ago, I went to seminary, and then they told me to empty my mind and everything I ever knew, and they restricted us from using the Bible. And I had it all marked up and highlighted and dog-eared, and they made me get this Bible, this New Revised Standard Bible, which, by the way, is the most perfect translation. No, I'm kidding. So, um, and... Uh, because it has no footnotes, it's got no marks in it, there's no boldness to it, it's barely got a map in the back. And they said, we're going to wipe you clean, start you over. And it wasn't that difficult. That was hard, hard to do. I mean, as a result of all that, I can exegete the scriptures in the original Greek and Hebrew. I'm a little rusty these days. I've preached the word. I've taught the word. I've based my life and ministry upon the word of God. Heck, I even earned a doctorate based upon the whole content where the Bible's taken me. I am close to being an expert on that darn book. You know, because an expert, you know what an expert is, right? It's somebody who knows more and more about less and less until they become an actually, uh, you know, know everything about nothing. So, um, and that's what I am. And yet, all of that Bible training, only in the past few years do I realize that I am a word of God and you are a word of God. From the dust of the earth, I am God-breathed. And here on Ash Wednesday, coming up March 2nd, you know, you'll get the imposition of ashes put on your forehead and we'll say to you, you know, from the dust you came into the dust you shall return. And God breathed life into you, dusty folk, and we all became God people. A miracle in itself. We are a word of God. You are God-breathed, and you are a direct result of God's logos, his thought. And we have been spoken forth from God, says Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. The word of God is only speaking to our word. You know, the word, speaking to the word. And we are being drawn together now, word to word. So that now we get back to the Hebrews chapter 4. Indeed, the word of God is living and active. Now this makes sense. Is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing it until it divides soul from spirit, joint from marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. We all stand before God. No pretense. Whatever props we think we have, that's not the way it works. We're not in control. How about you? How's your word? How's your word doing living off the word? You know what I mean? Do you have a voice in your life that splits you in two? That divides bone from marrow? Do you have any voice? The scriptures do that. What guides your thoughts and intention? How do you know how to live? Where's the voice of wisdom? It's right there in the scriptures. Naked soul laid bare, just you and the Almighty. You study it. You study the love letters, and you begin to understand why you're here. Amen.